So there I was, minding my own business on Friday, and the Lord seemed to say something to me. I was looking at a, a scripture in the last chapter of the book of Acts, and it, it uh, came to my mind, you know, that would make a really dandy sermon. And then yesterday, last night, when Pastor Craig called me and told me that he had just been diagnosed with COVID, I thought, hmm. You know, it's good to know every once in a while that the Lord precedes you. And since um, I don't really preach old sermons to new friends, you're about to be treated to what I refer to as a Saturday night special. <laughs> it's just your dumb luck that we happen to be here together. So I don't know. If, if you'll allow me, I want to read from Acts chapter 28. You probably remember the story in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul has been miraculously brought to the team of faith, and he is the apostle that literally sent out one who has been authorized by the Holy Spirit to go and spread the gospel wherever he has opportunity. This is a worldwide movement you're a part of. You knew that, correct? And so the Apostle Paul is one known for bringing the gospel, the good news, even to Gentiles, which is why most of us are here today. Yeah, it was a great time for an amen. But in the end of the, of the second volume of Luke's two-volume history of the early church movement, the 28th chapter of the book of Acts, we end up anticipating something is yet to happen. The Apostle Paul has been arrested. He's under lock and key. He's literally shackled with a chain to a Roman armed guard. He's in the city of Rome, and there he awaits an audience with Caesar himself, where he will give an, an explanation of the charges that have been levied against him, that he is a follower of a crucified and risen Messiah named Jesus of Nazareth. And so I want to pick up that story today, verse 17 of the gospel, or excuse me, the book of Acts. And this is what we read. Three days later, Paul called to gather the local leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or customs of our ancestors, yet I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. When they had examined me, the Romans wanted to release me because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to the emperor, even though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is for the sake of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken anything evil about you. But we would like to hear from you what you think, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. That's got to be soul-crushing news for an extrovert like the Apostle Paul. They haven't heard anything about him. After they had set a day to meet with him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning until evening, he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. 
Some were convinced by what he said, while others refused to believe. So they disagreed with each other, and as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. He takes out his Bible and hits them with prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors, to the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed listen, but never understand. You will indeed look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears are hard of hearing. And they have shut their eyes so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Let it be known to you then that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Listen now to these last two verses of Luke's history of the early church movement. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Akolutos is the, literally the last final word of that book of Acts. Akolutos, which means unhindered, without restriction, freely. I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. The Apostle Paul, the Gentile of human freedom, the one proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, is now in the imperial city of Rome, the capital city, but he's under house arrest. He's fastened with a chain to an armed guard. He will shortly be on trial for his life before Caesar. He is, in other words, a political prisoner. No, he's a religious prisoner. And yet Luke ends this work, this gospel, and this second volume, the book of Acts, with this funny little Greek word, akolutos. You probably didn't know that before you walked in here today. Akolutos, which means un hindered, free, without restriction. How odd of God. I, I want to admit to you at the outset, it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly how to close a story, how to end a story. What do you leave out? What details do you leave in? How do you go about telling the story in such an inimitable way that everybody who hears it will know they've been in the presence of a great story? Maybe some of you remember hearing about President, uh, our former President Harry Truman, who was in the White House residential quarter one day when his wife Bess walked back into the room and found him kneeling before the fireplace, throwing something into the fire. She asked him, what are you burning? He said, our love letters. All the love letters that he'd written to Bess when they were courting. She said, Harry, you've got to think about posterity. What, what will history have to say about it? He said, I am thinking about it. That's why I'm burning them. <laughs> I understand that. I'm enough of a preacher, a communicator, to realize that how you end the, the foot on which you leave your audience, that's very important. How do you tell this story? What would you want to say? You remember, perhaps, how the book of Acts began back in chapter 1. The first few verses tell the story about the risen Jesus showing up again, unexpected, with his followers and disciples. He shares with them and convincing proofs of the fact that he's now once again alive. He 
shares salt literally with them. In other words, he's having fellowship with them. He's eating with them and spending time with them for 40 days. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God. It's a wonderful thing. And then he says, you need to wait right here in Jerusalem. In other words, wait in a place that just kill me and you will receive the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, which will come upon you and empower you so that you can be my witnesses in Judea and in Samaria until the uttermost ends of the earth. That's a wonderful thing. That's how the gospel and how the story of the book of Acts really began back in chapter 1. But now, listen to how it ends. We've got the apostle who is sent to the world to share the message of Jesus Christ, but he's under house arrest, he's under lock and key, and yet Luke says he's akalutos, unhindered. Now, there are some people who listen to Christians like us and say, you know, that's just like you people. You read the Bible seriously, but not literally. You, in other words, are people who are given to exaggerations. You make a lot of metaphors, and you like to build up the story. When the facts are not in your favor, you go out and, and you make something up. Well, you know, that's an honest critique, and I understand and recognize that there are people who have substance for their critique, because from time to time, when I listen to the ranks of those who are in the disciple community, I recognize and understand that we have a well-deserved reputation for at times speaking metaphorically, fantastically, as if to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to sign up to believe several fantastical uh, outlandish things before breakfast. But I want to remind you here today that this is structural steel and brick and mortar. This is not gingerbread ice cream. This is, in other words, a story about a man who is destined to be a witness for Jesus Christ, even if that costs him personally. And it does. He's beaten, he's shipwrecked, he's rejected by others, and now we find him in house arrest in the city of Rome. And yet, Luke says, he's akalutos, unhindered. What do you make of that? I think one of the first things we ought to say, very interestingly, is this is not really metaphor. This is not really some way of dismissing the harsh realities and the brutal facts of Paul's life. I, I was down um, in North Carolina with a friend of mine. I met him in doctoral program, and, and he was telling me the story about a second grader in the church in one of the Sunday school classes, and the teacher was making a bit for the, the student's attention, clapping hands, and, and the teacher said, I want to ask you a question. It's kind of a pop quiz. What were the first words that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, spoke when he was raised from the dead and came to meet up with his disciples again? What were the first words he had to say? And the kids at second grade, they were a little bit perplexed by that question. And finally, one of them started to wave his hand. I know, I know, I know. And she said, what, what, what's your answer? And he said, ta-da! <laughs> well, you know, I, I understand the impulse. You want to end up with something fantastic and really striking, but that really misses the point, doesn't it? Because the risen Jesus, when he comes back from the grave, what's the first thing he does? He shows them the nail prints in his hands. He shows them the wound in his side. The Easter Jesus has scars. Why is that? Well, it's because the Easter Jesus is in continuity with all that we suffered before. 
if it's not the dead Jesus who's been raised again, then we really don't have anything to tell anyone. But if it's the dead Jesus who's been raised to new life, then you and I have no authority to look at any circumstance in our experience and dismiss it as anything less than the kind of thing that God Almighty would use to redeem a world. That's good news. So, you know, I, I want to go back here and say that when Luke ends his story by saying the Apostle Paul was akalutos, unhindered, he's in fact emphasizing and understanding that the reality of those privations, that difficulty, that challenge that Paul is experiencing, none of that has been erased. It's just been redeemed and transformed. Now, if I'm going to understand this word, I have to ask myself a question. Maybe I can ask you the question too. What kind of story are you going to tell out of the unvarnished truth of your experience? When you really get around to the nitty-gritty, I mean, don't tell me one of those creepy Christian stories that sound like an, one of those dreadful infomercials, bad product, uh, questionable, suspicious marketing strategy. I don't want to get to that. If it doesn't work in every neighborhood, it doesn't work in any neighborhood. If you don't have something to tell me about life's most difficult moments and what Jesus can do to overcome and transcend those experiences, then I'm really not that much interested. Anybody like me? What kind of story are you going to tell? Every once in a while, you run into people who will tell their story, and they'll tell it honestly, even if it's uncomfortable. I, I remember a few years ago, I was captured by a recurring series of articles in the New York Times, mag, uh, New York Times Sunday version. It was written by Saleka Jawad, and some of you will know that name. She went on to marry John Baptiste, who is the band leader and Grammy award-winning composer of uh, Stephen Colbert's late-night TV show. I didn't stay up that late to watch, but the reality is Saleka Jawad was a Juilliard music student. She was busy practicing her double bass. She hoped to have a career playing for some of the great symphony orchestras of the United States. Uh, Soleika Jouad was, in other words, bright. She graduated from Princeton, and she was ready to unleash herself on the world when she was diagnosed with a particularly acute form of leukemia. And she began writing this column in the New York Times entitled Life Interrupted about all the things that she recognized that she had lost because of this new diagnosis. She said, um, it became very noticeable, especially when I would log on to Facebook. She said, I really think we need to rename Facebook. All the pictures and the selfies that we put on there, the brags, the humble brags that we lobby to our friends. She said, I think instead of Facebook, we ought to call it my best Facebook. That's the way it goes. She said, you know, as I would log on and was prompted by that question, what's on your mind today? She said, I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to say much of anything about my cancer diagnosis because she said, I learned in those early days that the people around me, it was like I was a contestant in an existential game show. As soon as they heard about my diagnosis, they would weigh in with the first thing that popped in their mind as if the bell just rang and they had to ask their question, are you going to lose your hair? 
my ex-boyfriend asked me, are you going to die? She said, I couldn't deal with that any longer. So finally, I deactivated my Facebook account and simply went silent because I realized I was mourning what I called SBC, Seleka before cancer. What kind of story are you telling to the people who watch your life, who are close enough to know who you really are, to know what kind of person you are when the pressure begins to arise. I, uh, <clears throat> as a pastor, I was at a conference in the Phoenix, Arizona area one year, and uh, it was a, a conference for pastors of large churches, and we were trying to deal with one another honestly, and, and it was at a Roman Catholic retreat center, and frankly, uh, what that meant, as far as I was concerned at the time, was that our food was being prepared by people doing some sort of medieval penance for certain sins committed in a previous life. You know, it was just awful food, and it was a terrible place, and it wasn't doing much to help my spiritual formation, I gotta tell you. And so one day, one afternoon, at the end of our last session of the afternoon, I said, well, you know, we're just about to have lunch. I said this to Lori, she was a very um, thin woman, pastor of a large congregation, and she said, no, I'm going, I'm going back to where I say it. I said, aren't you staying here? No, she said, I decided to treat myself. Oh, do tell. <laughs> she said, I, I'm staying over at the Camelback Inn. If you've been to Phoenix, some of you have seen the Camelback Inn. It's the kind of place where Jesus would go on vacation. You know, it's nice. She says, I love the room service. I love the food. The chef is doing a great job. And I said, well, that sounds really rough. She said, well, you know, I deserve to treat myself. I've lost 150 pounds. I was stunned. I said, you have? And she said, oh, you don't understand. She said, on Monday, I go back for my second round of radiation followed by chemotherapy. Suddenly, that was a very different story that she was sharing with me. Very different story. And I understood that she wasn't in any way trying to avoid or skirt the issues, the real issues of her life. She honored me enough to tell me the real account of where Jesus was active right then and there in her life. What kind of story are you going to tell? I mean, one of the things I have to do if I'm going to learn this word akalutos and begin to incorporate it into my own spiritual journey, I have to learn that, frankly, I, I might have to radically redefine the way I have thought about power and significance. When I look at the Apostle Paul here and realize he is akalutos, uh, that's an odd juxtaposition because he is without many of the advantages that he's been able to enjoy throughout his ministry. He's no longer able to walk and talk freely, to go wherever he would like. If you want to read about that, go back to Acts chapter 16, where he wants to go one place, but the Spirit of Jesus prohibits him. He wants to go to a second place, but the word Jesus won't allow him to move forward. In other words, he's stuck with a third choice. And eventually, all of that displacement leads him to Roman imprisonment. 
In other words, none of this was stuff that he chose. He didn't like it. And if I know anything about the Apostle Paul, when he didn't like something, he told you flat out what was going on. The Apostle Paul was one of those people who, well, let me put it this way. Some folks, when they suffer in silence, they do it louder than others. (laughs) Do you know what we're talking about? So maybe I need to redirect and redefine the way I think about power and true significance. I was reading about Paul and Alice Gruninger. They lived in a little village along the Swiss-Austrian border in World War II. Paul was raised in the church. He was raised in a faithful family. And he went on to get married to Alice. And, and then under the influence of Alice, who wanted a little bit more in their life, and his mother, who insisted that he have a little bit more in his life, he went out and got another job. He got a job with the local police department. His job was to work on um, junkets for political leaders. When they would come to town, he would uh, fix the security detail. But he also was in charge of working on passport control. And that was an important thing in 1938 and 1939. In 1938, a new law was passed in Nazi Germany that didn't allow non-Aryan citizens to transfer and go to a new area like free Switzerland. And so everybody was ignoring Paul. He was just one of those nondescript people doing an everyday job. But while he was doing his job, he decided to do something unique. One day he showed up at the police station and a uniformed guard said, I'm sorry, sir, you can't go in there. We've done an investigation and we found that you have been changing all of the passport applications predating them so that those non-Aryans from Austria were allowed into Switzerland and therefore saved their lives. The authorities made up lies about him, said that he was demanding sexual favors in in, uh, in return for that favor. And so he ended up being shunned by his society, forgotten by most of his neighbors. He died in 1972 nearly penniless after selling umbrellas. And he was forgotten by history until somebody wrote a book about beautiful souls who did unlikely things like changing the dates on non-Aryan passports and allowed people to get their freedom. Richard Holbrook, who used to be our UN ambassador before his death, he said every person in the world sits at a desk in effect, and in one of the desk drawers are two rubber stamps. One is marked approved and the other is marked rejected. And your job when you meet people each day is to determine which of those two rubber stamps you will use. Are you going to stamp their life approved and allow them abundance and favor and blessing? Or are you going to stamp them rejected and send them back to wherever it is they came from? Sometimes that means they'll end up in places like prison or even death. But in... in without thinking about the after effect, some people decide to pick up the stamp that marks 
that is marked approved. And because they do so, they let loose grace, the grace of God into the world. Hey, let me just tell you, nine-tenths of the grace of God let loose in the world at any given point in time is done by people who just manage to show up and decide which stamp they're going to use that day. That's worth knowing. And if you know that, you decide to act as a morally courageous person, not because it's a choice for you, you don't decide, oh, I'm in favor of putting myself at risk. You just have determined in what kingdom you manage to live at this particular point in time and to whom the king, to whom you owe your allegiance. That's what Christians do. I've been thinking about this word, akalutos, and what it means. I think, frankly, I may have to reconsider what instruments of grace God intends to use to bring redemption to the world. They may be instruments that I would have never chosen and that I, frankly, do not prefer. Anybody like me? I met a Pentecostal pastor many years ago when we were both at, uh, sharing a hotel room at a leadership network conference. It was a gathering of um, large church pastors. I don't mean large church pastors. I mean, they were pastors of large churches. L.H. Hardwick was his name. He'd served at that time for 42 years at Christ Church Nashville, one of the grand Pentecostal congregations of the Old South. And I met him and made friends with him and, and learned a lot, and tried to glean him for every bit of wisdom that he would share, because this was a guy who obviously knew what it was to live akalutos, unhindered. I decided that that was so much fun sharing a hotel room with him that the next time I was traveling through Nashville, I would make a point to go visit his church and see L.H. again. Uh, you know, he was telling me stories about his worship choir. He had Winona Judd singing back up in the worship choir. That's what kind of congregation this was. And so I went, one Sunday I was, I was scheduled to fly out of Nashville that afternoon. And I thought, what better time for me to show up at Christ Church Nashville? I forgot that it was Pentecost Sunday. And these folks were hanging from the chandeliers. I mean, it was a celebration of the Holy Spirit blowing through the place. What was it? It was just a big family meeting. In fact, they were at the conclusion of a building campaign. They had built a new addition to their facility. And L.H., in his wisdom, had decided that what they needed to do, quoting from 2 Samuel 24:24, they needed to make an opportunity for everybody. There were rich and poor, as in all congregations, but everybody was allowed to participate in raising funds for that new facility. In other words, he wanted to quote from Samuel, I will not give to God that which cost me nothing. He said, you may not have a lot of cash money to spend, Life may have been unkind to you. Circumstances may be against you. But you probably have something precious that you can offer to the Lord in thanksgiving for all God's kindness to you. And so he decided he would keep some of these gifts 
and put them in a permanent memorial yeah, a permanent memorial holding there in the building. In other words, it was going to be a display that everybody could see these precious gifts that had been given by the least, the lost, and little members of the congregation as well as others. You had me at hello. I mean, it was, my, my plane was going that afternoon, but frankly, I had to sneak out of that sanctuary after three and a half hours in order to make my plane. They were still going strong. It started, it started with the associate pastor who brought up one of his guitars. I'm a guitar player, and so I knew what kind of sacrifice that was. A beautiful guitar, and he played a song and sang for the congregation. His name is Wonderful. And then there were people, they didn't have a lot of disposable income, but they had precious gifts, and so they had given gifts of real estate that they had inherited in their families. Some of them had other gifts that they wanted to share. The one that really put me away was a woman who brought up her wedding band from a failed marriage. And she said, I was praying about this, and the Lord seemed to say to me, if you will trust me with the sadness and pain of your past, I will guide you to a blessing in the future. Well, that was powerful stuff. And, you know, being a preacher, I stole it the first opportunity I had. I told my congregation, Pasadena First Church of the Nazarene, the next Sunday morning when I was back in town, I was a large congregation, but, you know, I just tossed it off there. If you will trust me with your pain and sadness of the past, you can believe I'll guide you to a future with blessing. I thought, great moment. I was kind of doing a victory lap as a pastor, you know. Just a little story I found out on the road. And, and the next Sunday, the usher stopped me after the service, and they said, what do you want us to do? I said, what do you mean, what do you, I want you to do? The service is over. You know, we're dismissing the folks. Let everybody go home. They said, no, we were collecting the offering today, and there were three wedding rings <laughs> in the offering plates. I had no idea. You know, if, if you'll be honest long enough, people will tell you where they live. I've learned that. God can use anything to accomplish redemption. Sickness, your good reputation, a broken marriage, God will use it all because our God is not so squeamish. Our God even used a dead Jew named Jesus to raise him up to life again. He uses broken, broken things to accomplish what he needs to get into the world. Thanks be to God. Now, what that means is I, I probably, I need to come up with a, a more elegant theory of how God atones and redeems and, if you allow me to use this old-fashioned word, sanctifies, makes holy the ordinary stuff of our days, one after another. And so I, I've been thinking about something I found from a, an acquaintance of mine. Craig Barnes was president 
uh, Princeton Seminary when I was working on a degree there. And Craig, he wrote about this. He said, sometimes we're directed by roads that are closed off to us. That's what happened to Paul. He was closed off under house arrest. Hearing no in some journey is what you have to get used to, said Craig. You don't have to understand the no. You don't have to agree with the no. You certainly don't have to like the no, but you have to hear it because that's often the way we're directed. It's easier to live with the confusion of being told no along the way when you remember that it's not really your job to get your life to the right place. Thanks be to God. That's God's job. Our job is to pay attention to the divine traveling companion who gets and goes there with us. In fact, sometimes it's much easier to draw closer to God when you're confused. Sometimes you pray better after running into a closed road than you do on the open road. And wherever it is that you're praying more profoundly and deeply, that's the right road to be on. Don't worry about where it leads you. If God wants to turn you around, God will close the road. Just worry about faithfully tending to the one who travels with you. God can use the wrong road to get you to the right place. After all, God owns all the roads anyway. So worry more about paying attention to your traveling companion than the roads. Parishioners facing difficult choices often want to talk with pastors about that. How blessed, he said, these people are to have so many wonderful choices ahead of them. Just don't expect the new job or the new spouse or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Don't expect the new thing to make you happy. For happiness, you need to attend to the traveling companion who is on the road with you. Which city does God want me to go to? I don't know. Greg said, it's at this point that people usually figure out why pastoral counseling comes absolutely free. (laughs) How could I know? He said, here's what I do know. I know that God is not up all night saying, I hope she picks Chicago, because if she picks Los Angeles, I can't help her there. All the roads belong to God. In the words of David in Psalm 2510, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love, chesed in the Hebrew, and faithfulness. So he said, we need to develop a profound theology of plan B. I thought I was supposed to do plan A. I was wrong. Now I need a backup plan. You would be amazed at how many times people in the biblical drama are going to plan B. Now some of you may be up to plan X or Y or Z. Don't raise your hand. That's all right. Go to double letters if you have to, but you have to get off the hook for being right all the time with making these choices. That's called hubris, pride, and it's one of the deadlier sins. Is there anybody here who's up for plan B or plan X or Y or Z? You remember Jesus in Mark chapter 10 Verse 35, James and John, those two dopey brothers, came up to him and said, Lord, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Jesus doesn't dress them down in front of everybody, but he does make it clear they've asked the wrong person for the wrong thing. They can do much better than that. How about this? 
What do you think about saying to Jesus from time to time, will you do in us, in me, what you must so that I can do for you whatever you ask? That's the sanctification question. I just thought you might want to learn about that today by learning a new Greek word, akalutos. It means unhindered. Amen. I want our worship team to come and lead us in a closing song, and then I'll return and lead you in a benediction. You've been very gracious. Thank you for putting up with my voice. On uh, March 29th, two years ago, I suffered a stroke that damaged my vocal cords, among other things. I just was blessed with some bad genes. I didn't choose them. I don't like them. I didn't want to be there. But I'm trying my best with the help of the Holy Spirit of God to live akalutos, unhindered. Thanks be to God. Hey, church family. Thank you so much for watching this video. We hope that God is inspiring you and working in your life. If so, make sure you send this video to a friend so that they can be impacted by the good news of the gospel as well. Make sure you like and subscribe to the channel so that you don't miss a single video. And as always, we hope that God is continuing to work and move in your life. Thanks again for watching. God bless.